Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted-in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Vayetze, He Went Out. The address is Breshit, Genesis 28.10 through 32.3. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Tortizia Ariel bin Lyman. This particular written commentary was updated on December 1st of 2005. Note, all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible, translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim V'natan lanu et Torato Baruch atah Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Today's portion is named Vayetze, because in the opening sequence of events, we find our main character, Yaakov, which is Jacob, going out from Be'er Shiva. The root word of Vayetze means to go out or to draw out. In fact, um, as, as uh, Yaakov goes out towards the land of Haran, he is really going to be uh, just uh, getting into the um, more exciting parts of his of his uh, life, I should say, or his his, uh, his adventures uh, as the covenant man that he's turning out to be. And so, really, as we're following this story, I just want to remind you that the next few parshot are really, really good. I really encourage you. Um, not only to follow along in my commentaries, but to uh, read along in the Torah portion itself. In fact, more importantly, read along in the Torah portions. And, um, you know, in my opinion, I, I think they uh, read better than any fictional novel that we could ever pick up. In fact, last week I likened the action to that of a pace of a good Tom Clancy novel, with no disrespect to Mr. Clancy himself. Um, because this particular Torah portion is complete with intrigue, suspense, and betrayal. However, we must remind ourselves as we read God's Word that the Torah is much more superior to any novel that any man could write. For not only is the Bible real-life action, that is to say it's not fictional, it also has the capacity to speak to each and every single individual and bring about a real-life change in their circumstances as well. It's because the Word of God is alive, it's powerful, it's quick, sharper than every two, any two-edged sword. We know the quote from uh, the book of Timothy there. If you stop and think about it, Jacob, Yaakov, he's on a journey. And truthfully, it's like many of us today, we are also on a journey. 
from the beginning his life has been a struggle and but it's also a life of completion um well as we see God bring him to the place where he's called to be but before that we see him competing struggling striving to be that which he thinks he's supposed to be or uh, or he knows he's supposed to be and yet he's not and um i'm pretty sure some of you listening to this disc or this uh podcast can um can relate in your heart you feel that god has called you to greater and and higher things and yet circumstances don't seem to agree with what you feel the calling of god's uh, uh will is on your life i have hope for you be patient be diligent be faithful to God's spirit and to his word he will bring about that which he promised to you through Messiah Yeshua and just as we're going to observe that he brought about the covenant promises that he made to Abraham to Isaac and now to Jacob he brings them to pass in Jacob's life he does not forsake him he does not leave him and um, in fact let me turn in the Torah portion there was a verse I was reading as I was uh, uh, reading through the portion this week uh, let me just find it here real quick. It's a very good verse. It's right at the very beginning. Here we are. Um, Jacob is out, and he's, of course, you know, he's running. And he, at the very beginning of the Torah portion, there's the familiar story of what we call Jacob's ladder. And he has this dream of angels ascending and descending on this ladder. And when he wakes up, he realizes that the Lord has been there, that the Lord's presence has been there. And he's kind of... Uh, um, kind of startled and, and and yet fearful and yet he makes a vow and it's right here in chapter 28 and verse 20 I'll read this quote Yaakov took this vow if God will be with me and will guard me on this road that I'm traveling giving me bread to eat and clothes to wear so that I return to my father's house in peace then Adonai will be my God and this stone which I've set up as a standing stone will be God's house and of everything you give me I will faithfully return one-tenth to you. This is after God has promised that he would not leave him and that he would, uh, ex- in, in fact, bring about the, the covenant promises made to his, his uh, grandfather Abraham and to his father Isaac. Uh, God says in verse 14, Your descendants will be as numerous as the grains of dust on the earth. And that's, of course, the same language, the promise of multiplicity that uh, Hashem had made to Abraham and Isaac. So we see that God is following Jacob and that he's he's orchestrating the events in Jacob's life to bring about the uh the prescribed end that God would have for Jacob. And we listening to this podcast or reading the Torah portions or even reading my commentary, we should gain um not only insight from this story but hope as we uh go through our day-to-day life and the struggles and the circumstances that we encounter and sometimes we feel like it's just too much to bear but keep in mind that as God watched over Jacob God will watch over us let me go back to my commentary here the harrowing events of last week's parasha and the theft of the family birthright uh, left Jacob running from his angry brother Esau if you remember Um, Jacob and his mother had orchestrated this um, deception with Papa Isaac, where uh, Jacob wore the coat of hair in order to deceive Isaac, who was, you know, he couldn't see very well, as getting up in age and his eyes were dim. And Jacob wanted to make sure that he was going to get the birthright that he had already um, bargained uh, Esau 
bargain from Esau during the incident with the pot of porridge, if you'll remember. So you could say that Jacob was possibly uh, unsure that he would really get that which he had bargained for. So he and his mother, um, Rebecca, planned this little uh, deception uh, with Papa to make sure that he would get what was his. And of course, when, when Esau found out, he was, he, was, <laughs> he was pretty upset and he vowed that he, would, that he would kill Jacob. And so Jacob took off running. And that's where we pick up the story today. Indeed, Jacob is going to find himself running from his brother for a good part of his life before he finally sets things straight. In a very real way, however, he's both running from something, that is to say his brother and his circumstances, and yet he's running to something. He's running into the very thing or the place that God is bringing him to. And this word, the place, the Hebrew is hamakom. I'm going to play off of that um term in this commentary because in Hebrew thought Hamakom represents the place where God's presence ultimately takes up residence in the Mishkan and eventually in the uh, the, the temple itself the place is where God dwells and so um, I'm going to play with that term the place throughout my commentary but for now we see that Jacob is running to the place where he believes he can be the man that he really should be in his own power and strength he feels that he's a covenant man, and yet, like so many of us, he's operating under his own strength and his own pretenses. He's really guiding himself, yet the unseen hand of God is really guide him, but uh, really guiding him. And yet, like many of us, um, we really think we're, we should be charting our own course. In a play on words, his first encounter with the supernatural is, as I mentioned, in a location that the Hebrew text calls Hamakom. The place. And that's chapter 28, verse 11. That's what it says there in the text. Traditional Judaism identifies Hamakom as the very spot where Avraham offered up Yitzhak, as well as the place where the future temple would stand. That's what I mentioned earlier. For now, to Yaakov, it was a fearful place. We'll discuss the name Hamakom a little later, okay? Let's continue on into the Torah portion, or I mean into the commentary. This week's Torah portion and next week's portion are going to serve as a kind of a two-part series, at least in my written commentary they will. A two-part series that focuses on Hashem's masterful design to shape Yaakov into the covenant man that he is destined to become. To be sure, it is the tale of how a man, complete with weaknesses and inconsistencies, becomes a nation of peoples chosen by Hashem to demonstrate His holiness to the rest of humanity. So, let's pause at this point and take a brief snapshot of this week's portion's events. Um, I've uh, listed, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six bullet points here. Uh, kind of an overview of the Torah portion. Let me go ahead and read these for you. Okay, here we go. Bullet number one. Yaakov dreams of a ladder bridging heaven and earth, complete with ascending and descending angels. Hashem once again restates the covenant promises that Yaakov and his descendants will become a blessing to all the nations. Yaakov erects a monumental stone in the place, renaming it Beit El, which means house of God. And that summary was uh, a, a snapshot of chapter 28, verses 10 through 20. 
The next bullet point covers chapter 29, verses 1 through 30. And in this little section, we see that Yaakov meets Rachel, who will be later become his wife. But for now, she is um, described as the daughter of Lavan, who is um, uh, Re- uh, Jacob's uncle. And Yaakov quickly falls in love with her. He makes an agreement with her father to work for him for seven years to obtain her hand in marriage. We find out that Lavan tricks him on his wedding night, substituting Rachel's older sister Leah instead. Despite the deception, however, because of his intense love for Rachel, uh, Yaakov agrees with Lavan to work another seven years for her, uh, for his Rachel. Um, each girl is accompanied by one handmaid as well. All right. In the next bullet, which covers uh, bullet point, which covers chapter twenty-nine, verses thirty-one to thirty-five. We read that Rachel remains the favorite of Yaakov's two wives and her handmaids. In her despair, Leah uh, receives favor from the Lord, from Adonai, and she bears him his first, uh, his first of four sons. Actually, she na- she bears him the first four, and they are in order: Reuven, which is Reuben, Shimon, which is Simeon, Levi, which is Levi, and Yehuda which is Judah. So those are the those are the events of chapter twenty nine, verse thirty five through thirty thirty one through thirty five. In the next bullet point, which covers chapter thirty, verses one through eight, I note that sibling rivalry of the worst kind, that is to say between two wives of the same husband, Oive. This breaks out and Rachel blames Yaakov for her barren state. In her anger, she grants him permission to conceive children with her handmaid Bilhah, and from that union, two more sons are born, named uh, Dan, which we say Dan in English, and Naphtali, which I think we just say Naphtali. <laughs> All right, uh, the next bullet point covers chapter 30, verses 9 through 21, and in this section we hear or we read that Leah follows suit and gives her handmaid Zilpah to Yaakov for more children. So Leah, seeing that um, Rachel has given Yaakov his hand, her handmaid, uh, Leah follows and does the same thing and gives her handmaid to Yaakov. And two more sons are born named Gad, which we say Gad in English, and Asher, which we say Asher. Leah makes a deal with Rachel to sleep with Yaakov. And a fifth and sixth son named Yisachar, which we say Yisachar, and I think Issachar is what we say in English, and then Zevulun, which we say Zebulun. These two are born. This time Leah also bears him a daughter named Dina, which we say in English, Dinah. That covers chapter 30, verses 9 through 21. And then in my last bullet point, I make note that Hashem finally hears the prayer of Rachel. Well, at least he answers the prayer. I, I believe you heard the prayer right up front. But he hears and grants the uh, the prayer of Rachel and gives her Yaakov's first son by her. And uh, they name him Yosef, which we say in English, Joseph. So at this point in time, the family circus of wives, handmaids, sons, and a daughter finally comes to an end for now. So um, no more bearing of children for a while. Yaakov and Lavan make a six-year deal involving the flocks owned between them. After this, unbeknown to Lavan, Yaakov takes off for his father's house with all that belongs to him. And that covers chapter 30, verses 25 through 
through chapter 31, verse 17. For now, I want to leave off summarizing and briefly talk about the character of Yaakov up to this point. As I stated earlier, I firmly believe that Yaakov was simultaneously running from something and running to something significant. He had become quite a, mel- a wealthy man by now. Um, he owned a large family, several pieces of livestock, and in those days, uh, livestock and land uh, were really signs of, of, of great wealth. It was, it was at this point in time that he felt that he should finally return to the land of his father, Itzach, and begin to live his life as the covenant man that he was trying to become. Now, it's a noble... Um, it's a noble uh, plan, you might think, to pack his stuff up and head back home. But, as you'll recall, operating under his own power is not going to uh, bring about the, uh, the, the, the covenant promises that God has made for him. Rather, it really just seems to get him deeper and deeper into hot water if he continues to operate under his own strength. And we can see the character of this man, Yaakov, by the way that he interacts with God. There's not very many prayers to God. I mean, they're, they're scattered here and there throughout the narrative, but not like Abraham, where he was stopping and worshiping God and building altars to God and, and things like that. So, it's okay that Yaakov uh, needs character development. After all, he is human. And I think it's great that the Torah doesn't paint him out to be some giant, but rather shows him to be rather um, down-to-earth, like you and I, I imagine, in that he uh, struggles from day to day with with the uh, uh, things that he knows that he should do versus the things that he ends up doing but regrets later on. But through it all, Hashem was the one who was orchestrating every stage in this young patriarch's life. Therefore, we, you and I, reading the Torah portion and listening to this podcast, we have an excellent opportunity to witness the sovereignty of God at work in the life of someone who is operating under his own pretenses. Let's take a look at the scorecard in case you um, doubt my, well, or in case you might um, have a a different opinion as to the character of this man, Yaakov. Here's what I've come up with as I uh, surveyed the Torah portion. I've again come up with some bullet points. I've got one, two, three, four, five, six bullet points again. As far as um, who's doing what. God is leading or Jacob's leading. You be the judge. Let's read here. Bullet point number one. Yaakov ran from his angry brother. Bullet point number two. Yaakov fell in love with Rachel. Number three. Yaakov agreed to work a total of 14 years for her hand in marriage. Number four. Yaakov played into the rivalry of his wives and handmaids and fathered 11 sons and one daughter up to this point. Number five, Yaakov decided to reimburse himself by getting his greedy father-in-law to agree to a ridiculous livestock deal. You know what I mean about the, uh, uh, you take the fat ones, I'll take the skinny ones, and, the, uh, and then he takes them down by the uh, river and he plants these these uh, um, poles or reeds in front of them and they, they the, the speckled, the, 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 I'm sorry, the speckled and the spotted and then they, they reproduce. Something really weird going on there, wouldn't you agree? And then finally, bullet point number six, Yaakov, finally being satisfied with his accomplishments, decides to head back home. So, looking at these six bullet points, it's it's Jacob, 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 Jacob. He's doing things. 
yet we don't really read as the narrative gives to us that God is leading Jacob. I know that God is orchestrating Jacob's movements, but I believe that God is allowing Jacob to operate this way for a reason because it's headed to a direction. Uh, uh, it's it's headed to a um, a confrontation with the Lord Himself, and we know that uh, that's exactly what's going to happen when Jacob ends up wrestling with the angel, which is in fact the Lord. So as you can plainly see, all of these decisions were Yaakov's. Yet, like an unseen supervisor, Hashem allowed him to make them. In fact, even during the relatively few times when he does encounter the one true living God, Hashem is described in terms that suggest a second or third party relationship. The God of, of, of my fathers, or the, 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 the God of my father. Why doesn't he call him my God? Why? I believe that Yaakov did not yet have a personal one-on-one relationship with Hashem, at least the dynamic kind of relationship that is genuinely spirit-led. I mean, he does know of God, and I'm not trying to say that Jacob wasn't saved. I can't be dogmatic either way. But something's peculiar here in the narrative, and I think Moshe is writing it this way uh, for a reason. Jacob did know God, and yet it seems that he knows him as the God of his father, and of his grandfather, but not as his God. You know what I mean? You ever hear somebody say that? Pray to your God, Father. Uh, Dad, pray to your God that, that, that everything will be alright. Mom, pray to your God uh, that, uh, that, that the bills will be paid. And why not say, let's pray to God and make it personal? Something's up with Jacob. His encounter with Hashem at Beit El left him in a state of amazement. The, uh, the whole ladders and the angels. And he did vow to make Hashem his God, but only after he was safe at his father's house. Seems like Jacob's trying to bargain with God. You ever been in that position? You know what I'm talking about? God, if you'll just get me out of this mess, I promise you I'll serve you better. God, if you'll just help me pay my bills, I promise you I'll go to church more often. God, if you just make this relationship work out for me, I promise you I'll start reading my Bible more. And you know what? I'm not just uh, preaching to you all. I'm preaching to myself because I've been in that position too. Hashem, if you'll just uh, um, you know, get me through this situation, I'll, I'll, I'll serve you better. And so the lesson is for me as well. So uh, pray for me and I'll pray for you. All right. I believe that Hashem was step-by-step step bringing him to the place. There's our word again, hamakom. Bringing him to the place where he would have no choice but to surrender his own will into that of the Almighty. Yaakov was indeed headed towards one final struggle. In this way, the Torah demonstrates that even when we operate in our own strength, Hashem's will is still powerful enough to guide our circumstances into the path that His will has determined that they should go. Our circumstances are divinely ordered by God, and yet sometimes He allows us to take the tough road the road of hard learning, the road where it should be better, but because of our own stubbornness, it's not. And as a result, as we read the Torah portion today, as a result, Yaakov was now able to witness firsthanded the pain and the frustration that he put his father and brother through earlier. You see, God is showing Jacob his own actions. He's revealing to Jacob his the fruits of his own labor and his own self-effort. But were it not for the deception on the part of Lavan, 
Yaakov may not have ever married Leah, if you think about it, from whom came the birth of both Levi and Yehuda, the ancestor of the priestly line and the Messiah, respectively. So, God works through our mistakes as well. But I believe that's not the will of God. We should operate by faith and we should operate in obedience. And yet in our disobedience, God can still make things work out for the good. So, there's a powerful lesson there. As we see, God's sovereignty is demonstrated in our weaknesses. Yaakov, of course, would still have to face his angry brother to make things right. But his dealings with Levan helped him to see just how greedy his own heart was. To be sure, when Levan finally catches up to Yaakov in chapter 31, verses 23 through 35, his father-in-law is less than happy. In fact, he's significantly less than happy about the current turn of events. How so? You see, Levan has witnessed that Hashem's hand of blessing has been on Yaakov. And what happens then? His greedy heart kicks in. He's reluctant to let him go so easily, easily being the selfish man that Levan was. And really, that's, that's, Levan, that's Jacob seeing himself. Jacob was greedy. Uh, when it came to wanting the birthright that his brother had, and he was greedy when it came to uh, coveting the, uh, how should we say, the affection that his father had lavished upon his older brother. However, Levon has been warned of God in a dream not to speak to his son-in-law, either positively or negatively, so instead he makes up some nonsense about not being able to say goodbye to his daughters when he finally meets them. Levan does, however, accuse Yaakov of stealing the household idols. Unaware that his beloved Rachel is in possession of the articles, which, by the way, um, signified an ancient form of inheritance. You can see chapter 31, verse 14, 15, and 19 for that note. Um, at any rate, Yaakov becomes fearful, and he foolishly condemns to death the person guilty of the crime. I think if he'd have known that it was Rachel who had the uh, goods... He would have made this foolish um, curse. This dialogue visit, uh, vividly demonstrates the complicated situations that can happen when greed meets greed. Wouldn't you agree? Jacob is now at the end of his proverbial patience rope, and in a fit of anger, he lashes out at Levon. What have I done wrong? He demands in thirty-one thirty-six. In a barrage of historical recollection mixed with accusations and hurt, he defends himself from this man whom it seems doesn't realize the obvious uh, quote-unquote honesty and good fortune that Yaakov has provided for him all these years. You see, in his hurt, Jacob lashes out selfishly. I've been the good guy and you're the bad guy. Can't you re realize how, how good I've been to you? Isn't that what we all usually do? When we're lashing out at our loved ones, friends, and family members, we just make them the bad ones and, and, and make ourselves out to be the good ones. You see, to Yaakov, it's been a long, arduous 20 years of genuine servitude. And he just can't understand why his father-in-law can't see this fact. I mean, it is fact. But it's also selfish. But Levon sees only what he stands to gain from the relationship. And that is precisely why he's reluctant to let him go without squeezing just one more drop of prosperity out of him. In his greed, 
Lavon blindly declares, quote, The daughters are mine, the children are mine, the flocks are mine, and everything that you see is mine. Selfish, selfish, selfish. Mine, 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 mine. Me, me, me. Here we have two grown men, as selfish as can be. Oy vey. What Yaakov needed in his life was a mirror. Someone or something to show him the greed and selfishness of his own heart. He needed to be able to see the inner workings of his own selfish heart in order to move on past this time of trials in his life. You see, Jacob is in the character lab. God is molding him, shaping him. This was providing for him. I'm sorry, this, this mirror that Jacob needed was provided for him in the person of Lavan. Lavan is a mirror of Jacob, so to say. Jacob is selfish and, and self-centered and, and um, operating under his own pretenses. I, and I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to paint Jacob out to be just some horrible individual. He is a covenant man. And yet, he's a covenant man in the making, is what I'm trying to say. And yet Levon isn't spoken about as a covenant man. Yet Levon is also operating under his own power, under his own uh, uh, wills, and, and just being driven by his own greed. Hashem was in the process of teaching Yaakov that in order to walk in the shoes of a covenant man, such as his grandfather Avraham and his father Yitzchak, in order to be a covenant man, he would have to have a transformation of the heart. A transformation that would ultimately culminate in the changing of his name as well. A change waiting for us in next week's parasha. For now, let us continue our current analysis of Yaakov and Levan in Vayetze. I'm on page 4 of my written commentary at near the bottom of the page. Levan was smart enough to heed the word of Adonai concerning speaking to Yaakov, good or bad. You know, he just says that, you know, the kids are mine, the flocks are mine, everything you see is mine. But the character of Levon is demonstrated in his effort to protect himself from what he supposed would be the repercussions of his angry son-in-law. Did you catch that? It's because greedy individuals think alike that, in his estimation, Yaakov should be concocting methods of revenge at this point. So, what happens? Laban, or Levon, thinking that, well... I know what I would do if I were Jacob. Levon strikes a mutual non-aggression pact, ensuing the safety of his own health and possessions. And and really, that's how we can see that these men are operating under human um, presupposition. The Spirit of God would have softened the hearts of, of these men if they were allowing God's Spirit to work within them. So let's keep reading. After all, as far as this uh, little... Um, um, peace treaty that they pull. After all, his son-in-law was indeed a rich man. Laban's no fool. Uh, Jacob's rich, and riches meant power. They did then, and they do now. So you don't just uh, get too angry. You don't you don't make too angry the man who has a lot of money, because he may come back later on to try and bite you. And so Laban's thinking, all right, this is the way I would do go about it. So maybe I better play my cards right and be nice to this. Uh, Son-in-law of mine. The covenant that they're striking, by the way, like so many other ancient Middle Eastern covenants, involved the selection of testimonial markers, uh, which are uh, described as standing stones in the story, as a visual reminder to all involved. 
there's usually some type of a covenant marker uh, whenever a covenant is cut between two parties, like a small stone or an object that you can carry on your person or something visual. All right, a meal is usually um, uh, a, a meal usually accompanies uh, a covenant, and, and in the story, in fact, the, a meal accompanies this peace treaty. And the two families spend the night on the mountain before they finally go their separate ways the next day. As we find out from reading, Yaakov moves out early the next morning, and he's met by two angels. Or the 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 Hebrew word is the same as messengers. And so these angels uh, impact Jacob. He, well, he decides to stay there, and he <laughs> and he names the place uh, Machanaim, which means two camps or two groups of angels. How can we apply this Torah lesson to our lives today? We already know that the Torah itself works in our lives as a mirror, highlighting the way in which we should walk, a way that should be pleasing. To our Heavenly Father. In fact, the book of James, who, ironically, the Hebrew name is Yaakov, uh, the book of James informs us that the man who looks into the mirror of the Torah and fails to heed its instruction, that is to say, do what it says, is like a man who beholds his face in a real mirror, walks away, and immediately forgets what he just saw. That's a reference to James chapter 1, verse 21 through 25. But sometimes, Hashem uses everyday experiences to act as His mirror of truth, not just the Torah itself. And our everyday experiences show us exactly where we need to concentrate our energies of correction. In fact, um, when I was putting together this commentary, I'm subscribed to FFOZ, First Fruits of Zion's uh, Torah Club, and in, I think it's in Torah Club Volume 1. The audio was done by Moshe ben Shaya. And um, <clears throat> in that audio, uh, I, I highly recommend his commentaries, by the way. It's a whole written, or a whole um, audio series. And in his commentary, he talks about uh, how he witnessed this mirror in his own life, this bringing in front of him someone else. Uh, let me see if I can recount the story. Before his transformation as a, as a very well-respected uh, Messianic teacher, he was somewhat self-centered in his quest for spirituality, much like many of our formalized religious circles are today. And so what happened is Hashem brought a dubious salesman, I think he described him as slick and polished, in his presentation into his home, offering him wealth, prestige, and position. And when my friend questioned the salesperson about his view of God, this particular salesperson took out a small index card, wrote a single word on it, circled it, and handed it back to my friend. And uh, my friend Moshe ben when he looked at the word, his world shattered. The word was self. It was then that his eyes were supernaturally open to his own heart's condition, and he was able to see that he was no better off than the person he was currently looking down his nose at, which was this dubious salesman. He was thinking, who are you, some slick, polished, uh, 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 got-it-all-together person coming into my house with your, I can sell you, hand you God on, on, a, uh, on a silver platter. And it wasn't until he realized that he was selfish himself and that the Spirit of God opened his eyes to that, that he was able to uh, realize that he had some work to be, uh, some work to do in his own life. After all, he thought to himself, I'm spiritual. 
you know, he was Jewish, he is Jewish, and uh, many of us in raised in religious homes think we're spiritual. He was he was thinking the same thing. I'm spiritual. I don't need worldly riches and fame. I had my religiosity and my relationship to God to fulfill me. You see, the problem with this mentality is that when we use our own spiritual achievements to measure our place with Hashem, we become callous to the real problem, a heart that is clouded by pride. But thanks be unto our God that He knows our heart better than we know it ourselves. He knows exactly what remedy is needed to shatter our shallow, prideful image and bring us to the place where we are ready to receive a genuine revelation from Him. He lovingly places just the right individuals and circumstances in our lives which will cause us to surrender our will into His perfect will. But like Yaakov, we must be willing to stop running long enough to recognize them. Next week, we will see just where Hashem has brought him to and why. The closing blessing is as follows. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher natan lanu Torah temet Vechei Olam nata batochenu Baruch atah Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. You've given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song, Shema, was written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com that's y-e-s-h-u-a number 613 at hotmail.com or visit our website at graftedin.com that's graftedin.com <laughs>